Good morning, church. Now hear a reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 25. This is the account of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And when Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Hadan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. But the children struggled inside her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? Did any mother of twins not ask these things? So she asked the Lord, and the Lord answered her. Two nations are within your womb, and the two peoples will be separated within you. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for Rebekah to give birth, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out reddish all over, like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. And when his brother came out, with his hand clutching Esau's heel, they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skilled hunter, a man of the open fields. But Jacob was an even-tempered man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for fresh game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked some stew, and when Esau came in from the open fields, he was famished. So, so Esau said to Jacob, feed me some of the red stuff. Yes, this red stuff, because I'm starving. That is why he was also called Edom. But Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear an oath to me now. So Esau swore an oath to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate and drank and then got up and went out. So Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, please speak to us about your word. Lord, we're, uh, we're messy people. Our family, <laughs> our family history is messy. Um, and we, uh, we need you. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you uh, use the preaching of the word to draw us to yourself? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's good to be together. I love this family. Yeah, good. Um, well, we've been studying the book of Genesis for a number of months, and every week I remind you that the first people who heard these stories are the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness. They've been set free from Egypt, and they're on their way to the Promised Land. And so we're trying to stand next to them first, and hear what they would hear. Now, in the wilderness, on the way to the promised land, there's one group of people that is particularly problematic for the Israelites. The Edomites. They're a prob the, 
the Israelites, they know which way they need to go at one point, and they, they peacefully send words to the ruler of the Edomites. Please let us pass through your land. We'll be, you know, we'll be as respectful as possible. We'll pass through peacefully. And instead of giving permission or anything like that, the king of the Edomites comes to meet them with an army and says, if you step foot in, in our territory, the fight is on. The tension with the Edomites will continue for generations. The Edomites will give King David all kinds of problems during his rule. They'll give David's sons, the, the kings of Judah and Israel, all kinds of problems during their rule. Edom is a problem for God's people. And today's passage, at least, explains where all of that tension started. You see, Esau, born red and hairy, is the father of the Edomites. He is an impulsive man who easily sees red. And here he is desperate for lentil soup. Soup. Desperate. One of the guys this week said maybe he really did believe he was about to die. And that's why he's willing to, you know, trade whatever for the soup. I don't know. Edom is the word for red. For him, satisfying his appetite is more important, more valuable than his birthright. So, aha, the Israelites would say, the father of the Edomites is the brute who disregards the gifts of God. This is why they stink. If only that were the whole message of this passage. The corrupt roots of Edom, that's all there is to the story. If only that were the case. But unfortunately, the people of God, the Israelites, trace their roots back to the other guy in the story. The Edomites may trace their roots back to Esau. They trace their line back to Jacob. And if this story is playing in one way, telling them why the Edomites are the way they are, well, it has to play the other way too, telling the Israelites why they are the way they are. This is a story of their roots. And friends, when the roots are corrupt, the trunk, the branches, the leaves, and the fruits are corrupt too. The problem with human life is that if we dig deep enough into our own story or our family's story, we will discover corruption. And what, so what's the good of that? Why do that? And is there any escape? Let me tell you about the roots that we see in this story. This pregnancy at the beginning of the story, Rebecca's pregnancy, is the continuation of the promised seed. It's not just the blessing that's promised to Abraham, but this is the hope of victory over the serpent that was promised to Eve. And so we've been following this line from, from parent to child to parent to child all the way to this point. The, the father in this story, Isaac, his entire life so far has been marked by God's miraculous provision. 
His birth was miraculous. He, he almost was sacrificed by his father and, and his rescue in that scene is miraculous. His marriage, this story we looked at last week, is a miraculous marriage. The provision that God has been showing to Isaac is just such a strong contrast to the way the people have been behaving all along the way. Except for the story last week, which is really a delightful story. There's romance, there's faith, there's prayers being answered. It's, it's lovely, people being generous and, 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 um, and the story continuing, showing God's provision. Aside from that little reprieve, most of Genesis has been God's people doing their best to try to get out of being the blessing carriers, doing their best to ruin the story with doubt, distortion, manipulation, fear, pride. It's been tracking with this family ever since Eve took the fruit, ever since Eve's sons, you know, her son Cain gets jealous at Abel and kills him. Ever since, God's been working in spite of the line to carry the story forward. So we add another layer to the provision and the twists of the story when at the start of our chapter that we just heard, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is unable to conceive. Oh, just like Isaac's mom, right? The, this is a theme. But unlike Isaac's mom and dad, Isaac, he responds differently. They, they took matters into their own hands. They, they tried to bring about a pregnancy with their best thinking, their ideas. They bring in this, uh, this servant girl and, and then it, all the relationships fall apart and they send her out and they send uh, her son out. They're cut off from the family. Unlike that, it's such a simple phrase. Isaac prayed and she conceives. Oh, that's all Abraham had to do? Man. That sentence disguises a reality here. Our chapter tells us that Isaac is 40 when he and Rebecca get married, and he's 60 when she conceives. In one sentence, we hear about Isaac praying and Rebecca conceiving, and it disguises a 20 year wait. Anyone here who has walked that terrible tightrope of infertility and you're, you're facing the winds of fear and hope and doubt and, and vulnerability, you could fill in all the gaps in these two sentences. 20 years that they waited. And yet the Bible tells us it's just a simple faith. Isaac prayed, and for him or at least in the telling of the story, the matter is settled. That's what happens. But as soon as Rebecca is pregnant, the story gets complicated. There's no ultrasounds in the year 3000 BC, but she knows something weird is happening inside of her. There's a, a wrestling match happening. And so she prays, and God tells her what's going on. He gives her this oracle 
There are two nations within you, and they're competing with one another, and, and things are going to be inverted with them. The, the, the older will have to serve the younger. One will be stronger than the other, but the older will serve the younger. In other words, God has a plan for these boys. Contrary to cultural custom, the younger of the two, now they're twins, but one comes out first, all right? The younger of the two is going, is by God's proclamation, is going to be the one who receives the larger portion of the inheritance, will go on presumably to be the leader of the family and, and the protector of the family, will have more authority. Ordinarily, the firstborn is the heir to the family's land. In fact, later on, the book of Deuteronomy stipulates that the firstborn son is given a double portion of the inheritance so that he can provide for the rest of the family. Now, this does go against cultural trend, but if you've been paying attention to the details of Genesis so far, you might notice another trend. Throughout the Old Testament, really, God chooses younger sons. God preferred the sacrifice of the younger brother, Abel, and it drives Cain to jealousy. And when, when Cain kills Abel, the blessing passes to the thirdborn son, not back to Cain. Of Noah's sons, it was his youngest who carries the line. Abraham is the youngest among his brothers. Isaac is Abraham's second son. You see it again when Jacob will later favor his youngest son, Joseph. King David is the youngest son among his brothers. He's the least likely to be anything but a shepherd. The message is consistent. The line, the seed, the chosen people, they're just that. They're chosen. They're chosen. This is God influencing the story, saying, I'm working in this line. He's not beholden to human customs. In fact, he seems to delight in inverting human customs and, and inverting worldly strength as a demonstration of his authority. And, and if this story were the story simply of a strong, brutish, impulsive older brother and a righteous, faithful, humble, if not a little bit weak, younger brother, then we'd have a lovely, I'd have a lovely sermon to preach to you guys. I, oh man, we, I love these, they, these kind of sermons feel great to me. This is a biblical message. His, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. This is Jesus saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. This is, this is Paul saying, God has chosen the lesser things of the world to shame the greater, the weaker to shame the strong, the, the things that are not to shame the things that are. He's chosen the, the death, the, the loss that happened on the cross as a way to show victory and strength in the world. What a lovely message. We love hearing that. You know why? Because we all feel weak. We all face things in our lives that are like, this is too much. I, I don't feel like I can stand up to this. That's such an important message, and it's true. It's such a comfort. But alas, that's not where this passage takes us either. 
The first son comes out red and hairy. He's like bursting with testosterone upon birth. And the second one comes out grabbing the first one's heel. So they named the one Esau after his redness, and they, they named the other after his heel grab. That's one, one translation of the name Jacob. It can also mean, may the Lord protect. It can be a term for someone who, who guards the, you know, watches your back, you know, has the rear guard. But he's grabbing a heel here. Now in Hebrew, someone who grabs the heel is someone who's trying to trip you up. That's the, that's the idea. It's, you know, the same thing we mean when we say, you tripped me. They cheat to get an advantage. This isn't the first time heels have been mentioned in the Bible, you guys. After the serpent entices Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, after she gives it to Adam, after they attempt to seize the gifts of God by their own means, God describes the consequences, and what does he do? He curses the serpent. He says the woman's future son will strike his head, and what will the serpent do? He will strike his heel. The serpent is the original heel grabber. And Jacob and Esau, they... they they grow up to be exactly what their names imply. Esau is a ruddy, meat-headed oaf who loves to hunt, eat, and serve his appetites. I mean, the, the dialogue in the story makes him sound like a caveman. Right? Even in simple, like, Hebrew is a desert language. He often uses as few words as possible. And yet, Esau is like, give me red stuff. In fact, the Hebrew just says, red, red. Like, he just wa he's just grunting to get the stuff. All right? In contrast, Jacob is cool-headed, strategic, manipulative. Think of it this way. There's many of you are familiar with perhaps the most popular sort of personality assessment. It's called the Myers-Briggs. This assesses people on four different scales. Uh, let me just tell you really quick, if you don't know, the first one is how we respond to the world around us. That's the extrovert-introvert scale, E and I. The second one is a scale of how we gather information from the world around us. So that's the, the sensing or the intuition scale. The third is how we make decisions based on that, in, on that information. That's the thinking or feeling scale. And finally, uh, there's a scale on how we, how we deal with the outside world, judging or perceiving. All right. One group took that little set of those four scales and, and combined it with another personality assessment. I, I get a little nerdy on this stuff, so I apologize, uh, called the Big Five. And so they added a fifth scale. And this scale is how confident we are in our abilities and decisions. And so that scale is the assertive or turbulent scale. Now, when I, when I take that assessment and I get my letters, um, the, the first four letters, 
they all seem like kind of neutral to me. Like, okay, you can be an introvert and extrovert. You know, different strokes for different folks, right? Um, assertive and turbulent. One person is calm and cool-headed, assertive, and the other is like, ah! <laughs> and I'm like kind of middling on all of the first four letters, and I am way high on the turbulent scale. It's like, dang it. It's such a, oh, man. You know, like most of the others don't seem like you should be this and you shouldn't be that, but assertive and turbulent kind of seems like a should. Like, it's good to be clear-headed and calm. Uh, all, all that to say, Esau is my guy. He's turbulent. Well, Jacob is like 100% on the assertive side. He's calm and collected. The Hebrew uses, the, and, and you heard in the, in the reading, he's even-tempered. Now, that word is usually a compliment. It, it can mean content. It can even mean righteous. But here, it's calculating. He is an evil genius, all right? He's willing to lie in wait for the perfect opportunity to strike. You know, he's, he's a serpent. He's a serpent. May I introduce you, my friends, to the, man's who's, to the man whose name will later be changed to Israel. He's the father of the 12 tribes, the namesake of the chosen people. The serpent of Ch Genesis chapter 3 hasn't disappeared from the story. He's taken on flesh. He's entered into the chosen family. And he's working to steal Esau's birthright. Okay, what is a birthright? It, the, the translation we've given it, birthright, it kind of defines it. It kind of helps us understand. It's, it's the inheritance, you know? It's what... You know, all things being equal, what someone who's a child of certain parents would inherit from those parents. It's the authority, the blessings that are held by the Father. I want to show you guys something. The word for birthright is bakora, all right? Bakora. This is the word for birthright. This is the first time this word has shown up in the book of Genesis, all right? Bakora. So, all right. Based on the context, you know, we can say, all right, well, he's, he's trying to get what's been, you know, what should be rightfully Esau's. So we think, yeah, birthright, that's probably what it is. All right, so that's Bacora. And, and that word hasn't shown up at all. But there's another very similar word that's shown up several times in really important places. And it's the word blessing. Bakora is birthright. Blessing is baraka. Baraka. Do you see how those two words are? The he I capitalized the Hebrew letters. It's the same four letters. We've just switched the middle two. For the Hebrew people, these are two sides of one coin. One is the thing in potential, and the other is the thing when it's happening in reality. This is the flow that's going on, all right? And that word blessing is such a critical word in the book of Genesis. In fact, some scholars trace the whole story of Genesis as how the blessing is flowing and when it's not flowing. It first appears when God creates the animals of the sea and of the air. It says he blessed them saying, 
be fruitful and multiply. So the blessing is a blessing to be fruitful and multiply. Then when he creates people the next day in his image, he gives them the same blessing with an added layer. Be fruitful, multiply, and rule over all these other creatures. God's blessing to people is the blessing of abundance. Be fruitful, multiply, and rule so that all these living things can be fruitful and multiply. When God calls Abram in chapter 12, the word shows up again. He calls Abram and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you. Do you hear it again? Blessing is about multiplication. It's about this fruitfulness that happens. Through Abraham, this blessing is supposed to spread to the nations. So now it's, now it's not just the creatures, but it's also all the other people. And you will carry the blessing in such a way that they will experience the blessing too. So Abraham's line is to exemplify blessing, baraka, and the potential that they carry for that blessing is bakorah. Now, I'm not sure bakorah is something you could barter over. I don't know that it's something you can trade. And yet, that's exactly what Jacob and Esau do. They treat a valuable thing like a common object. When the pressure is on in your life, when stress is high, which one are you? Are you an A or a T? Uh, let me give a new letter. Are you a J or an E, Jacob or Esau? All right. Which one are you? Are, are you impulsive, visceral, in a conflict? Do you go quick to shouting and insults and maybe you might even throw a punch in certain circumstances? Or do you stay? Are, are, you, like, are you like my big sister when we were teenagers? She would stay just completely calm while I'm like slamming my fist on the table. Ah! You know, like we're arguing over what music to play on the drive to school. And she's like, you know, are you that or that? Which one are you? Are you, are you, trying, are you trying to hurt the person in the moment? Or are you trying to destroy them for the rest of their lives? <laughs> Which one are you? These are our roots here. Guys, if Jacob is the serpent, then Esau is Adam and Eve wrapped up into one. I mean, look at this other connection from Genesis 3. When the serpent manipulated Eve, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. That happens in Genesis 3. Look at what happens in Genesis 25. After Jacob gives him the soup, Esau, he ate, he drank. He rose. He left. Songwriters know that that's, that's the same cadence. This is another verse of the same song. Right? It's the fall happening all over again. Okay, you might be thinking, what, what are you getting at? Okay, simply this. We are still dancing to the same music. We're still writing new verses to this song. Look, I, I love being a parent. I love having kids, but there are terrible, terrible parts to it. <laughs> All of you who are expecting right now, you know, there are. One of the worst, one of the worst 
is when you see it, you you see your kids do something and you know that that is your sinful tendency that they have inherited like your own particular way of acting in pressure your own unique blend of pride or greed or selfishness or whatever when you see it playing out in your kids uh, it's not a great moment it's not a good feeling when I see whatever pride sloth greed addictive tendency self-centeredness in my kids I'm like sorry Aaron that that's that's my child <laughs> alas and, and honestly, as we grow, for every one of us, I'm aware of my mother and grandmother in the room here. So as we grow, we go through that same process in reverse as we begin to see things in our parents and in our line that have been the problems that have played out in our own lives, their own version of it. Now, you know, you reach a certain point where you realize, oh, I learned that from you. We'll blame dad this week, mom. Um, th this is what happens. And, and you know what? Our parents learned it from their parents and from their parents. We, we see our line and we feel stuck in a cycle. Recently, let me, let me, let me put this another way. Recently, in the last year, two years, there's been a major cultural debate over a, a historical philosophy, a way of teaching and understanding history and reality now called critical race theory, CRT. This theory suggests an, an alternative way of looking at history from the mainstream message, and it incorporates ideas like systematic racism, implicit bias, that are showing in particular how the, the economic plight of minorities has been cooked into the norms um, that give an edge to someone, well, someone like me. I'm a tall, white, middle-class, you know, Protestant. Okay. <laughs> that too. <clears throat> This, okay, this, this, this sermon isn't about to become a rant on CRT. Like, take a breath. Take a breath, all right? Don't tweet about this. But without even understanding the theory itself, a lot of believers got angry at the suggestion that bias, prejudice, judgment, self-preservation, and pride have been distorting every interaction we have and that we've used our privilege to get ahead, to establish our security at the expense of others, to protect and grow our own power. How dare you rewrite history and say all that about me? Wait a minute. Let's set aside CRT for a moment and bring in CT, Christian theory, okay? When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, this insulting theory suggests that every aspect of our lives, our minds, our hearts were distorted. That even our best deeds are fueled by pride and fear and greed. And we prove it anytime our good deeds don't work out and we need to turn to other means to get what we want. If you think CRT is insulting, you won't like what the prophet Isaiah has to say. All our righteous deeds, he says, are like filthy 
rags. The Hebrew there is minstrel rags. I mean, uh, our best deeds. Why? Because we're the offspring of Adam and Eve, Abram and Sarah, and Jacob and Esau. Pick, Pick your poison. Were your parents inclined to rage or impatience or impulse or manipulation? When you see it in your kids, you don't need to wonder too much about where it came from. You can just look in a mirror. So, okay, let's review. The older brother who has the legal rights to the inheritance disposes of it because he's hungry. The younger brother who made a tasty meal steals those rights because he's greedy. And I carry them both in my bones. The impulsive desire to feel good no matter the long-term cost and the greedy desire for self-control so that I can get ahead. What is confession? Confession is when we name that stuff. When we say, it's still in me. It's still controlling me. Are you the impulsive one or the manipulative one? Are you the A or the T, the J or the E? How are those things shaping the people in your care and influencing them? Who did you learn those things from? Until you can name it and watch it work in your interactions, it will control you behind the scenes. That's how it works. That's how human life works. But even when we name it, even when we name it and we hate it, at least for me, I still sometimes, all the time, feel trapped by it. So I wonder, is there any hope? Well, I need to introduce one more character to you. Like Esau, he's the firstborn son. He's his dad's favorite. Unlike any son we've met yet, he weeps as the other children despise their birthrights and abandon their inheritance. He laments as they cheat and manipulate to get what the Father has freely given to them. He mourns when we are controlled by our impulse, when we get hangry. He feels it. Only this beloved son honors and respects his birthright. Only this beloved son utilizes his blessing to give blessing to the nations. Only this son deserves the inheritance. And yet with all of this power, with all of this blessing, he's not out to consolidate his power. He doesn't use his strength to subdue others. He doesn't use his brilliance to manipulate. Instead, at just the right moment, He goes out in search of the other children, the disenfranchised and distant and cut off children, the children of the Edomites and the Ishmaelites and the Israelites. And when he finds us, just like Jacob, he prepares a meal for us. We come in from our labors in the world hungry and tired and ashamed. 
we know in our bones that we are about to die. And he invites us to the table. But when he offers the meal to us, he demands nothing from us in return. There's no first, sell me this before I give you that. Instead, by giving us the meal, he is joyfully giving his birthright to us. Think about the inversion of this. This is the older son who has the birthright, who conquers in weakness. And he is giving his birthright to us when he says, this is my body. This is my blood. Friends, the, the, the bread and wine at this table, they are an invitation out of your family with all its greatness and all its brokenness into a new one with a new pattern, a family with true righteousness. What if the way of this older brother is still impulsive, but it's a visceral impulse to love and to serve? What if he's been cleverly lying in wait for millennia to fulfill his scheme, not to steal a blessing, but to give it? At this table of birthright is here, which you have no business receiving. And yet it's being offered to you. You're being invited out of Jacob and Esau's family and into Jesus's. Awesome. Welcome back. Kids, you can come in and find your parents. You're being invited into Jesus's family, a family whose pattern is generosity and blessing, service and love, self-control and peace. Let's pray together. Father, the mere fact that we can call you Father means your Son has given us his birthright. Thank you for this gift. Lord, th this story shows us all of our weaknesses and none of our strength. And yet even this you fulfill on our behalf. Jesus, you are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name. Amen.